Chapter 9, Shooting, Day 4. I've been at this for a long time. Day 4 would be our hardest so far, and perhaps the most challenging of the shoot. It was the radio shoot, the bar with the Rocky painting, which involved a live band, including all the instruments, a good deal of extras, new actors such as the bartender, a professional gaffer, and by his command, more production equipment than I had ever worked with. That gaffer was C.E. Courtney, a former professor, dear friend, and insanely talented cinematographer. We stayed in good touch after the MFA, as I helped edit and shape an experimental documentary he was working on. He was no longer with my school and had nearly moved south, but a relationship kept him in Boston, which was certainly good for our production. Still, he was only able to commit to this one day, which we desperately needed him for. There were no practical lights and radio. I still worked at my film school, and assumed as staff I could take out some equipment for the shoot. I understood that tuition-paying students would take priority over me, but it's a large equipment center. Surely there was something we could use. First, I asked C.E. what he wanted. As we spoke, he rambled off the following items. Note, I don't know what half of this even is. This is for the benefit of the camera geeks. 4x4 doubles and 2x2 doubles. Kinos, both tungsten and daylight tubes. 2150 watt and 1300 watt smaller Ari kits. 1 foot square panel LED light or LED brick lights. Several 1Ks and 2Ks. Selection of party gels. A couple of 2K zip lights that come with egg crates. Multiple C-stands and sandbags. Half a dozen baby plates and half a dozen cartellinis. 750-watt soft light with egg crate. Multiple apple boxes. And a bunch of stingers and extension cords. We weren't able to get most of that. This is ultimately what the EDC gave us instead, to CE's disappointment, although he still made magic out of it. I still don't know what most of it is. Five extension cords. EDC gel kit. Mole 2K open face. Mole 2K chimera. Three-point light kit, Diva light, and rolling Diva light kit. CE went out and purchased a big bag of rope lights and small bulbs from Home Depot, for which I reimbursed him. I could barely fit any of it in my car, pared down though it may have been. We didn't have a truck or a U-Haul or a van. We also needed the equipment for Tuesday, October 1st, and the equipment center needed the order back the next day. Meanwhile, Jeff prepared his brother Scott and several musician friends to arrive at 10 a.m. at radio. We were told we could use their drum set, but we would have to provide any other instruments. Scott and friends would be Hobnail Boots, a boring Britpop band who plays uninspired music while Mark has a drink. I was sending last-minute emails to the group of interested extras who had contacted me. Much like the kids, I was getting a lot more maybes, nos, and non-responses than yeses. A local musician and filmmaker named Sophia Cacciola, Sophia, if you're listening to this, I have no idea how to pronounce your last name, so forgive me contacted me, excited to jump on, as she and her husband had played many times at radio and had shot a few music videos there. A 46-year-old exotic model had also contacted me the week before, and I happily cast her as the leathery and aged Boston bartender. She and her boyfriend thought it was hilarious, and she spoke to me on the phone for over a half hour, preparing for the character that was really just her. I expected it to be weird and wonderful. It being a Tuesday, we had rush hour traffic to contend with, and I had to pick up the pile of equipment from school then make it over to Somerville for 10 a.m. To beat the rush hour, I wanted to leave by 6.30 a.m. John Ryan elected to join me, while Nina and John Hunt would leave a little later and head straight for radio. Hannah wasn't required for this day, so she was working at our office near the equipment center. She came out to meet J.R. and me and helped schlep the equipment from the EDC to the illegally parked car, guarded by a rock star chain-smoking John Ryan. The equipment staff were very friendly, and many of them knew me, and they all seemed to know C.E., eager to see this movie we were working on together. They all knew more about camera and lighting equipment than this two-time film student would ever know. 
they categorized some of what we booked as film equipment and some as video, a stupid distinction if you ask me, which were to be picked up at two different counters that were booked for two different times, 9am and 9.30am. We tetricized the massive light cases into the trunk and back seat and headed off for Somerville, arriving around 9.30am. The parking situation was bad. There is nowhere to park in Somerville. Having all the heavy equipment, I decided to pull into a spot that looked owned by radio. There seemed to be two spots, one for vans that park at radio, and one right next to it for the adjacent residencies. At best, I would keep the car parked there for the day, and at worst, temporarily stay there, unload all the equipment, and then hunt down some street parking. John Hunt and Nina had already struggled with that, and we met them in front of the building. We unloaded the equipment out of my car so it would be ready to move into the location at a moment's notice. The door to the location was locked, and Amy wasn't there yet to let us in, but we were still early. Jeff, Bonica, Kyle, a small spattering of extras, not the exotic model bartender though, Scott and the musicians all slowly arrived. The musicians pulled into the residence parking spot and unloaded all their equipment as I had. I spoke to the driver. Hey, thanks for coming. This is going to be great. Uh, that's probably a residential spot you're in. Do you want us to look after the instruments while you park someplace on the street? I can't park on the street. My sticker expired. Well, what if you have to move? I'll move. We were now sprawled out across the sidewalk of radio, with many thousands of dollars of equipment unloaded. I saw C.E. drive by at one point, but it would be another 20 minutes before I saw him walk up to the location as he battled for a parking spot. The musicians talked and laughed amongst themselves as Sophia effortlessly joined them. I couldn't tell who already knew one another and who didn't. And I didn't care, because it was now 10.15 a.m. Remember Amy, the owner who had a change of heart and didn't charge us for the location? Yeah, she was nowhere to be found. And amidst coffee shops, bus stops, liquor stores, record music stores, hurting children, hurting extras, mandolins, and bickering with Kyle, I had failed to make contact with Amy since our email exchange. And I didn't have her cell phone number. 10.25 a.m. Definitely panicking now. Nina's experiencing the brunt of this as I pace and swear under my breath and check my cell phone obsessively, googling Amy's name and wondering if there's another owner of the bar I can contact. I text Hannah. She reminds me that the manager of the equipment center is a musician and might know how to contact Amy. I try him, but don't get him. The rest of the rabble seems unfazed, enjoying each other's company, breathing in the fall air, looking forward to a film shoot, but not especially caring if it happens. I'm reviewing scenarios. What if it's a complete wash? Is there another location I can get within the next half hour? I have all these people and resources slated for this day. Sure, we had our John Ryan contingency week, but if radio falls through, I'll have to arrange for another bar. Hope I get one because I still hadn't gotten my second bar location, and hope CE, the musicians, actors, and extras are all available for that contingency day. No. No, 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 no. This shoot had been going way too well. After 10.30am, Jeff finally picks up on my anxiety. Hmm. Okay, yeah, hmm. Do you think she forgot? It sure looks like it. Do we know where she lives? What are we going to do, knock on her door? And no, I, I don't know where she lives. Yeah, I'm just wondering if she slept in. My shortness and increasing insanity is becoming more audible to the group as my cool-headed reputation quickly evaporates. Sophia perks up, smiling and calm. No Amy? No Amy. Yeah, no, she does this all the time. You want her number? You have her number? Yeah, like I said, I play here all the time. Everyone knows Amy's a total flake. I dialed Amy's number and received a response way worse than a voicemail message. An automated message from the carrier. The Verizon customer you have reached is currently unavailable. Please try again. I must have tried that phone number another 15 times. Nina was grumpy alongside me, and from what I could tell, put off a little by my rage. But she was still my ally. 
Over by the cars, there was some graffiti in the parking spot. There was a black stencil painting that simply said, Not Art. C.E. took a cell phone photo of John Ryan standing next to it. He showed it to me while I was still pacing. Pretty good picture for this morning, right? He said in his well-humored, slightly twangy accent. It actually made me crack a smile. Jeff continued to counterbalance my mood with some hopeless optimism. And aside from Jeff Torelli. Optimism is in no way something people associate with me. But still, balance is important. Bad moods, anger, these kind of things spread like wildfire, be it on a movie set or in a band setting. Having spent years doing things as a group in music made me learn quick that if you all start down the path of anger and cynicism, you're drastically reducing your chances at salvaging anything from whatever it is that has gone wrong. Well, what if... Is there any other place to shoot? Is any place open? He said as he lazily gazed around the block. I was about to snap at him, but kept it inside. Yeah, Jeff. There's like two bars up the road. Let's just walk inside and ask if we can take over their business right now and for the rest of the day, in which we'll tape up their windows, bring in big lights, thousands of dollars of camera equipment and instruments, and dozens of people without property or safety insurance. I'm optimistic. But as that all ran through my head, and I looked at everything we had done to prepare for the shoot, I also realized that the slight chance for a yes was worth it. The worst they can say is no is a tenant of independent filmmaking that I've preached for years. I stammered with some indignance. Well, we better not stand around for much longer. We better start looking. Before I finished my sentence, Nina was darting down the street with her tiny backpack and incredibly powerful, I'll do it, attitude. Jeff chased after her. I stayed behind and worried uselessly. Nina and I walked in, and she immediately started getting to the bottom of the age-old question, who's in charge around here? If I haven't mentioned it earlier, Nina is absolutely critical. A problem solver, a polite but firm and commanding presence when she needs to be, and of a logical mindset that keeps the rest of us flakes on track. All of the minutiae and details it takes to make the day-to-day of a shoot happen, she was all over it. No Nina, no movie as far as I'm concerned. I jumped in on the conversation after Nina had already shown the guts to get it rolling. We explained what was up and told him what we needed. Then he looked around at the one patron in his bar, did some quick mental arithmetic, and charged us 150 bucks for the afternoon. Can't beat that with a stick, especially when you are as far up the creek as we were. Frankie is a seasoned filmmaker at this point, and even he almost forgot the golden rule. All they can do is say no. Had we forgotten that rule entirely, I don't know if we could have finished the movie in the nine days. Simply walking down a block and asking a man a few questions, and giving him some money, of course, saved an entire day of shooting. While we were waiting, sure enough, a resident tried to pull into his parking spot, and couldn't because of our musician's car. It turned into a ten-minute ordeal of repacking the musical gear, moving the cars, and loading the lighting equipment back up to make room for the car to park behind me. The added stress, especially since I knew it was going to happen, left me in a bad way. Extras, who I really hadn't gotten a chance to meet, started slowly coming up to me. Hey, just so you know, I have to go by noon. We had asked them to stay until 4 p.m. Just go now, whatever, thanks for the times, I wanted to say. No problem, sorry for all this, I said instead. Nina and Jeff were in the distance, walking back with some speed. I read them as having an air of optimism, which seemed impossible given the circumstances. I expected them to have options, but not good ones. Okay, PA's Lounge? They'll let us shoot until 4 or 5 p.m. if we give them 150 bucks, Nina said, slightly out of breath. Really? Where is it? She pointed to a building that couldn't have been further than 200 feet. See that car and that big door? It's right there. We could walk. I couldn't believe it. Suddenly, that $150 I waffled over with Amy months back felt like a steal to solve our problem. It was 11 a.m. We were an hour behind to shoot over 25 pages. Let's do it. 
Okay, everybody, the location has been moved to PA's Lounge. That way, if you have to move your car, do it now. We'll all meet there in 10 minutes. Action started taking place. I moved my car out of the radio spot and into an illegal spot across from PA's. I spent some time with Nina and John Hunt moving the carload of equipment up to the door. I hadn't even considered if the location was adequate. I just knew it would have to work. I emailed any extras or actors that hadn't shown up yet or weren't due yet, informing them of the new location. I walked in for the first time and saw a bar, a few tables to the left, a big open standing area for an audience, and a stage for musicians. No Rocky painting, but fine. I was in a daze. C.E. and Bonica hit it off instantly and were hard at work blacking out the windows. It was all supposed to take place at night. Nina leapt in to assist. Remember how I said to designate a spot for people's stuff? I lost complete control over that, as the standing audience bullpen became infested by backpacks, empty waters, guitar cases, party gels, plastic bags, and more. I heard later that one of the musicians went home to grab a drum kit, since we had been counting on radios. I don't even know how or when that happened. I went to the owner, shook his hand, and thanked him. Nina had already paid him. Moments earlier, his bar was near silent, with one or two heavily sedated day drinkers. Now we had wrought pandemonium on his grounds. I looked at the wall near the tables. There were pictures of the man I just met, decades younger. Frankie, who needs to be mic'd in this scene? John Hunt asked. Um, I tried to locate a script in the chaos. Frankie, where are we starting? Kyle asked. I found a page and saw we were shooting Mark entering the bar. He's meant to be stopped by a bouncer. I hadn't cast one officially, I just hoped one of the extras would be acceptable. Looking around, I only saw one largish dude named Duval. He had told me earlier he needed to leave by noon, which is a half hour away. You want to be the bouncer? Yeah, of course. Is it a speaking role? Sure is. Here are the lines. At some point during this, Nina and JR had asked for my car keys to either retrieve materials or move the car around the block. I have no idea. But soon, Nina became the set valet, moving people's cars for them as their two-hour parking ran out so they wouldn't have to delay shooting. Kyle and C.E. had known each other previously and became a quick team, as Kyle would set a basic frame and C.E. would paint the background with lights. He had the strength of ten film students, plus two. The dude barely needed a prompt or direction to begin work, and yet wasted no effort. That's what experience gets you, folks. J.R. was in costume. Yuval was... in place? The bouncer was written to have a Ramones shirt, which was Jeff's Rocky. But the Ramones shirt was thrown in with J.R.'s clothing explosion and hadn't made it to set. J.R. felt overly bad about it, but I just thought it was miraculous that we were about to fire off a shot. Kyle set his frame, and it was a bit boring, just a doorway with J.R. walking in. I may mention that there was little depth, and some of the daylight was spilling in. C.E. silently jumped into the frame and began adjusting, and I waited patiently. Frankie, just call action, C.E. hollered. Call action? But C.E. was still in the shot. But he told me to call action with such confidence, I thought it was worth testing. Okay, action. Within milliseconds of calling action, the final rope light gracefully fell into place in frame. There was a nice halo behind J.R.'s curls, and C.E. did a ninja vanish. J.R. walked in and we rolled the first take in a day full of almost impossible circumstances. That very take is in the final movie, so when you see that shot... Just know that everyone behind the camera is running on adrenaline, fear, and Oreos. The musicians were still getting ready, so we shot Mark at the bar overhearing three extras converse, which includes the film's title, You Guys Looked Like You Were Really Having Fun Up There. We only had three extras to spare anyway, one was Sophia, so they all got a speaking part. We had to frame the shot carefully to imply that there were more people at the bar, because any wider, and you would have seen nothing but backpacks and snack wrappers. The musicians were set up, and I knew shooting their scene was going to be one of the more complex arrangements of the day. 
First, we had to work out the music they'd be playing. They had to be bad, but not like amateur and unpracticed, just uninspired and dull. Jeff relayed his vision to his brother, who started playing a few notes. Chris and Jason, keyboardist and drummer respectively, followed suit and played something laughably perfect. Directing a band is super loud and intimidating to control, but I often forget that on set, everyone's regularly looking to me for feedback, so simply holding up my hand silenced the Britpop. I wielded power. I only had one thing to add. Something about the riff they were playing gave me the feeling that at any moment, they were going to stop and say something to the audience, and then resume enthusiastically. Hey, Scott, maybe you could say something like, Do you feel us? Or, Still with us? They began playing again and quickly agreed on a stopping point. Scott leaned in close to the mic and quietly, Are you with us? Perfect! A bit of coverage later, and the music playing of Hobnail Boots was wrapped. I was incredibly relieved. Okay, so the next scene is going to take place later at night. CE instantly started dimming things. Enough direction. It was time for Maria to play her big song. Her boyfriend, John, the author of the song she would play, was on set. He, JR, and a few others informed me that she was riddled with nerves. It hit me that I hadn't reviewed the song since the first time I heard it, when it was unacceptably bad, and that some movie magic was going to be necessary to get this done. Still, it was my job to put her at ease and get shooting so we could move on to the rest of the day. I found her in the back of the bar and she started rambling to me about how it might take a few takes and to please let people know she's not a musician and to please know she's been practicing but hasn't gotten the time she's wanted and that if it comes out bad, we can have John just do the guitar track and, 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 and. We got her up on the stage and took it in a very pretty close-up. As for the performance, the guitar playing was rusty and she was a bit off-key. Was it irreparable with a dubbed guitar track, some cuts, and some coverage? In my opinion, no, but I would receive more opinions later. The crowd was meant to be speaking over her during her performance, to her frustration, which meant we had to shoot a crowd. Hobnail boots and any extra we had up to that point was crowded together to make a moderately convincing group of bar attendees. I asked Scott to call back to his line. Scott, after she yells shut up, can you turn sharply and say, we're still with you? He did it, and it was dumb. Watch the bloopers. Good or not, Maria was done, and she could relax for the rest of the shoot, even though she had over three heavy dialogue scenes ahead, but to her, that was child's play. Nina had reminded me that we may be asked to leave at 4 p.m. at the earliest. It was 1.20 p.m. Still, neither the owner nor any of the customers were fidgeting at all. I felt no actual pressure to stay on course, but there was still a good chance the owner would eventually tap me on the shoulder and say, Uh, can you leave? So I kept my mind on 4 p.m. It was time to shoot the last scene of the film, in which a youngish, hipster-aged bartender asks Mark about his music career, and when he normally would diminish his aspirations, he proudly hands her a final mix of Snow Day. I asked Melissa Campbell, an old friend from the MFA, and not an actress, to play this bartender. She showed up on time, friendly as ever, and I saw her arm tattoos for the first time, colored pencils with colors running down them. It seemed right for the character and situation, and the discussion about art. In the script, there were actually two bartenders on different shifts in this location. The bar was named Skeller's Cheeseburger King in the script, as a bit of trivia. The first was the leathery one I referred to earlier, meant to be played by the 46-year-old exotic model, and the other was this hipster girl at the end. I noticed an email from the exotic model that she showed up to the old location, and when we weren't there, she went home. She was disappointed to receive my, we're at a new location, email, and asked what she can do to work with me again. I told her she could be a bartender extra in the other bar location that we're due to shoot later in the week, whatever that may be, but she didn't show up to that shoot either. I haven't heard from her since.
Additionally, as we were setting up for the last scene of the movie, Sophia and I received texts and voicemails from Amy, apologizing profusely for the oversight. She thought it was next Saturday. I'm not sure where she got that. She said she wanted to make it up to us. Suddenly, I wondered if we could get radio for the second bar location, which was still undecided. Maybe that Rocky painting wasn't completely out of reach. But should we rely on this person a second time? It was difficult to say. Nina said she would go down and discuss with Amy. In the interest of time, we shot the hipster bartender scene kind of boring. Shot reverse shot, contrary to our stylistic wishes. Still, it was well lit and well composed, so I have no complaints. We wrapped that in less than 20 minutes, slowed down only by Melissa's need to understand every logical detail of everything she was doing. Wait, why would I count money inside the bar instead of out by a table? Or something like that. She's a filmmaker, not an actress, and that came out while shooting. When I asked for her to just hush and trust me, she seemed to get a little grumpy. To be fair, her concerns were often correct, just not worth the time we didn't have. It was now almost 2 p.m. I had to get through the final shot of the film and then three lengthy dialogue scenes. That last shot should be the most visual, final impression of the character, symbolizing his decision to work food service into his 30s and 40s as he continues to play music. I envisioned it as a big, wide shot of the empty bar and him mopping, almost like a landscape or a vista. I barely even described it that well to C.E. and Kyle as they got the shot set up in less than five minutes, while J.R. located a mop. It was executed with perfection after two takes, and we moved right along. In 2006, shortly before Abo, I took a film class called Film 2, in which we were required to make a short movie shot on 16mm film. I was pretty broke throughout college, and film shooting and processing is super expensive and difficult to execute successfully. It requires a lot more care and lighting. My solution was to design a story in which the same event, in time-lapse, takes place Monday through Friday in the same location, necessitating the same camera setups again and again. Then there was a variation punchline at the end. But the point is, I was able to shoot it outside, no lighting, and roll all lines and actions for the whole film in one take per setup. It was an insanely economic way of shooting on film, both budget and time-wise. I remember showing my dailies to my film class and film professor, and they were all pretty bummed out on me for shooting in this lazy fashion. Well, forget them, because it's that kind of low-budget technique that allowed us to wrap these three heavy dialogue scenes in the remaining two hours. It was simple. It's two people sitting across from one another at a table. All you really need is a medium shot of the two of them at the table, a close-up of JR, and a close-up of Maria. Cut those three together, and you have a competent, well-covered dialogue scene. The intention in the script was that this bar was their place, and to that end, I tried to justify the routine nature of these camera setups as them coming back to the same spot in repetition. I sold that line to Jeff, Kyle, and C.E., none of whom seemed to buy it, but all seemed to accept it. To that end, the most economic way of covering the scenes would be to light and set up for the first shot, say the close-up on John Ryan, and run the whole scene. Then, keep the lights and camera right where they are and have J.R., and if she's in the frame, Maria, change clothes. Then run the next scene. Do a final costume change and run the next scene. When all three scenes have been captured in his close-up, move to Maria's and shoot exactly the same way. So when you watch the three bar dialogue scenes with Mark and Carla in the final film, you're seeing three shots cut together that weren't shot contiguously at all. Movie magic. We had two extras remaining, Sophia and a woman named Tiffany, who was an actual mom in the birthday party scene, meaning she was the mom of a child extra, appeared on camera in the birthday party scene as a mom extra, and then showed up on this day to play a bar extra. We had an official groupie. We staggered them per scene so that someone different sat behind Mark or Carla in each scene, giving the littlest bit of an illusion that we weren't the only people there. A little bit of distant band music and some background chatter mixed into the edit, and you'd never know. 
Speaking of no one being there, PAs did have one day drinker, a hard-looking woman who was in her 60s or 70s. She was clearly a regular, as the owner seemed to coddle her some and respond to her neediness. She griped about how bright our lights were, but wouldn't move from her permanent place at the bar, so we made our best effort to dim lights when not shooting. As we rolled through the often heavy and emotional dialogue scenes, she had a front row seat to the show, laughing while we were rolling takes and expressing aloud, mm-hmm, or very good, every so often. I found it so hilarious I could barely concentrate. At one point, John Hunt had to stop the take for a few minutes and adjust microphones. Practically an earshot of John Hunt, she shook her head and said to me, you gotta get rid of him, the fat guy. I didn't feel like telling her that without John Hunt, I wouldn't make movies. I owe most of my creative life to that fat guy. Still, the absurdity of the situation was funny. Melissa Campbell stuck around and played the bartender role that the exotic model was supposed to play, which honestly worked out better, to only have one bartender, so at least we've met the person in the last scene earlier in the film. We wrapped a couple of quick close-ups for her, completed all work to be done at PAs, and somehow weren't done shooting. One thing that was appealing about radio was that it had a downstairs with another stage for musicians. We had planned to shoot a segment for the film's final montage in which Carla is on tour with her old boyfriend and band, to be played by her real-life boyfriend, who had stuck around all day, and his real-life drummer, Derek. Carla acts like a drunken mess, and the band tosses her. I met Nina over at radio where she had been talking with Amy. Amy felt very guilty, and wanted to offer us the location for the downstairs shoot, and the secondary bar shoot later in the week. She was also offering to make us pancakes on the day of the next shoot, which I insisted wasn't necessary, but she insisted it was. She blushed a little when I mentioned that the shoot would have to start in the morning. She apparently works until 2 a.m. and has a hard time waking up. But she offered to hand the store keys to Sophia to let us in. Sophia couldn't make it that day. There were still details to sort out about this. As for this day, since Maria's friends had shown up with instruments in tow, they all wanted to get the montage shoot in the can. Everyone except for the core group of us left, as we ditched unnecessary equipment and headed to the radio basement. Nina had an intense migraine from moving in and out of the blacked-out location in the bright sunlight and was in no mood. We had some manner of scuffle out by the car. I was asking Nina to sort out the details of shooting later in the week, but she wanted me to do the negotiating. I was about to be busy shooting and didn't want to lose Amy, so I pushed back on her to do it, and it ticked her off. We spent the next hour in a quiet state of marital resentment. While dropping off equipment, I also exchanged some brief words with Jeff about the day. He was hung up on the poor musical performance by Maria, but I wasn't convinced that it was that big of a deal. It was the first time in the entire endeavor that he insisted I was wrong, so naturally I was eager to edit and be right. Coming down from the stress of the day and the bickering in the last several minutes, I walked into the basement area, which smelled like dead animals, and hardly had the energy to find what I wanted out of the scene, much less ask for it from Kyle and the band. Kyle took an elemental kit and quickly built a competent lighting setup, and we decided to both improvise the camera work and performance. With no extras left to make up a crowd, Jeff and I shouted heckling insults at Carla off-camera, which was a ton of fun. You can hear them in the final film. Wrapped, I had some final words with Amy, who said, You know what? I don't care what I have to do. I'll make sure I'm there at 10 a.m. No problem. Nice as that was, it wasn't satisfactory given the miscommunication from the morning, but it was hard to figure out if that was caused by valid date confusion. I told her I would call her the day before. I waited in my car as John Ryan took 20 minutes to buy cigarettes and hit the John at a nearby market basket. He and I were going to head back to school, check the equipment back in, pick up Hannah to stay over with us, she had a shoot with us first thing the next morning, grab dinner, and try to fit in some relaxation. It dawned on me that I was dehydrated and hadn't peed all day, so I picked up a huge water. On the way to the equipment center, my GPS took me a crazy way, 
and then a flat-out wrong way, so it took well over an hour to get there, causing JR and I to get punchy and very silly. I can hardly explain this, but we were imitating all the traffic lights in the city, first in the voice of Mike Ehrmantraut from Breaking Bad, ending every sentence with a judgmental, Walter. So maybe we would say something like, In about a minute, Walter, I'm gonna turn green. I want you to drive through me, at a reasonable pace, and we'll all get through this. Understand, Walter? Then it evolved into Bane from The Dark Knight Rises. Good evening, brother. You will yield to the yellow light, not jump it. They'll expect one of us in the traffic lane, brother. We laughed like children and eventually got Hana. On our way home, Nina called our favorite local Chinese restaurant, the Oriental Pearl, and ordered a haul. When we got in, she was settled hard into bed, coming down from the migraine. But Hana, JR, and I ate our weight in crab rangoons, rice, beef teriyaki, and chow mein, and watched YouTube. We made a little time to record two podcasts, one for day three and one for day four. JR planned to get some work done with GTA 5, starting around midnight, setting himself up for exhaustion the next morning. <laughs>